Let's pray for God's blessing on our time in his word, please. Father, thank you for giving us the words of eternal life in Holy Scripture. Be with us now as we read them, as we walk through them, and as we remember uh, the work of the great reformer Martin Luther, the man who was under the convicting work of your spirits and for whom only the true gospel brought him peace with God. Help us understand these passages and to lay them up in our hearts and treasure them there and to put them into practice in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, two scripture readings this morning. Galatians 1, 6 through 9, and we're going to walk through both of these passages after I do a little introductory material about the life of Martin Luther. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, this is God's word. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And then turn over to Galatians 2.14. Galatians 2.14-21 to 21 is our second scripture reading and passage. Galatians 2.14. This is God's word. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I would live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. May God bless the reading of his word. Roland Bainton, the historian, the biographer, wrote, I think, the best biography ever written about the life of Martin Luther. And the opening paragraph of the book goes like this. On a sultry day of the, in July of the year 1505, a lonely traveler was trudging over a parched road on the outskirts of the Saxon village of Stoddernheim. He was a young man, but sturdy, and he wore the clothes of a university student. As he approached the village, the sky became overcast. And suddenly there was a shower, and then a crashing storm. A bolt of lightning riveted the gloom and knocked the man to the ground. Struggling to rise, he cried out in terror, Saint Anne, help me! I will become a monk! The man who thus called upon a saint was later to repudiate the cult of saints. He who vowed to become a monk would later renounce monasticism. A loyal son of the Catholic Church, he was later to shatter the structure of medieval Catholicism. A devoted servant of the Pope, he was later to identify the Popes as Antichrists. For this young man was Martin Luther. End quote. It was at the age of 21 that Martin Luther abandoned the study of law to enter a monastery after that incident with the lightning. He was able to study law because his father had labored very hard and very long in the mines and had saved the money to send his son to become a lawyer, recognizing he was a brilliant young man. And young Martin's abandonment of his law degree to entering of a monastery greatly angered his father. But Martin Luther feared something far worse than his biological father's wrath. Martin Luther's spiritual eyes were beginning to open to a truth 
that he could not seem to escape from in his mind and heart every day of his life. And that truth was this. God is holy and Luther is a sinner. God is a righteous judge who must punish with eternal hellfire those who die in their sins under that judge's just and legal condemnation. As a student of law, just like Augustine over a thousand years before Luther, and John Calvin, another student of law who is a little bit younger than Luther, Luther understood something about the law of God, the Ten Commandments, that very, very few in his own time, and I would say very, very few today, understand either. And that truth was this. When God, the Creator, the Holy One of all, issues forth a commandment to his creatures, that law does not allow for failure of any kind. Students of law are often the best theologians and the best pastors. You know why that is the case? Because the entire Bible, from beginning to end, reads like a legal document. God is the just judge. God gives mankind laws to live by. When he created Adam, he gave him a law. And that law was broken. And God told him the penalty would be death. The grand conclusion of all of history, we know it is what? It's going to be the day of judgment. Where the whole human race, everyone that's ever lived and died and everyone alive at that moment Christ returns, will be summoned forth to stand before the judge. The whole human race in scripture is said either to be justified or condemned. As you sit here right now, you are either condemned or you are justified. When Christians talk about being saved, we're talking about what Paul summarized so well in our declaration of pardon that I just read to you, Romans 5, 8, and 9, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath for him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, another great passage. For by grace you have been saved, it says. Well, saved from what? Saved from what? Saved from the avenging wrath of God against all of our sins, against all of our disobedience to God. That's what scripture means by saved. Saved from God's vengeance. Saved from God's righteous anger against us for our law breaking. The conscience that God gave every single one of us, that conscience that nags us and bothers us and bears witness against us that we're doing things that we we know are wrong. That conscience is a gift from God. That conscience is the law of God written on our hearts, we're told in scripture. In Romans 2, 14, the scripture says, when Gentiles who do not have the law, Gentiles have never heard of Moses, they don't have the Ten Commandments, they don't have Bibles, but in their hearts they do by nature the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness. And between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. What Luther saw, the reason he went into that monastery, and the reason that no matter what Rome gave him to do, it didn't work. He understood if there is one who is a just and righteous judge who knows all of our secrets, who knows everything we carefully hide from everyone around us, then we're lost. We're lost. It doesn't matter what we do. We're all in the gravest of trouble. This is what Luther saw so clearly early on in his life as a monk. And when he went into that monastery, he was extremely devout in his practices of being a monk. And the the life of a monk at that time in this Augustinian monastery that he entered into, their whole days were filled with prayers and singing and very hard physical labor. And they would make the cross sign over themselves over and over and over again. And they'd sprinkle themselves with holy water. They would sleep on hard floors in the cold with no blankets. They would frequently fast from food. And Luther seemed, at least for a short time, to be content to live like this until he conducted his first Mass. When he conducted his first mass, many of you are familiar with that story. His terror at the majesty of God was clearly on display. Even as his father, his father finally came to terms, okay, my son's a little weird, so he went into a monastery. I'll come and watch him do his first mass. Okay, that's fine. Bainton says this, quote, 
Luther took his place before the altar and began to recite the introductory portion of the Mass until he came to the words, We offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. And he related afterward, At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, With what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living and eternal and the true God. End quote. See, Luther understood what so many don't understand today. He knew who God was. Why is there so much informality, so much irreverence, so much disrespect to God because people don't know who he is? After this incident, Luther's approach to trying to become righteous enough to enter heaven after his death, it ramped up. And he would fast for sometimes three full days and nights at a time, not eating a crumb. He prayed almost endlessly. By his own admission, he nearly killed himself with cold sleeping there in Germany in the winter with no blankets. And he would even congratulate himself at times. After doing things like that, he would say out loud, I have done nothing wrong today, only to have the doubts start creeping in. And then he started asking himself, but did you fast enough? Yes, but are you poor enough? Have you confessed enough? Did you do enough good works? And later in life, Luther said his practices had permanently damaged his digestive system. He wrote, quote, I was a good monk. And I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. His biographer, Bainton, said this, All such drastic methods gave no sense of inner tranquility. The purpose of his striving was to compensate for his sins, but he could never feel that the ledger was really balanced, end quote. Luther confessed his sins for hours on end, every day, to priests who told him directly that, look, nothing that you've ever confessed is even remotely interesting. Luther had been told, hey, you'll be, you'll be forgiven of every sin that you confess. And so evidently, he embraced the idea, well, that's salvation by memory. I've got to remember everything. That didn't work either. And Luther still knew that he was hell-bound. And as an aide to help him, he would sit in the confessional box with a copy of the Ten Commandments and the Seven Deadly Sins, and he would go back to his childhood as far back as he would remember and would go step by step every single time he felt he had violated any of those commandments. And it wore his confessors out and drove them nuts. And Bainton said this. One of his confessors finally said to him, Man, God is not angry with you. You're angry with God. Don't you know that God commands you to hope? And he even said, look here, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in here with something to forgive. Like you just killed your parents or blasphemy or adultery instead of all these peccadilloes. I mean, how much trouble can you really get in in a monastery anyway, right? What are you, coveting brother so-and-so's mashed potatoes or something? But you see, Luther was a lawman. He was a lawman. He understood law. He understood how it worked. You either keep it or you don't. You've either done it or you haven't. Bainton said this, he had arrived at a valid impasse. Sins to be forgiven must be confessed. To be confessed, they've got to be recognized and remembered. If they're not recognized and remembered, they can't be confessed. If they're not confessed, they can't be forgiven. This guy was a neurotic mess. In fact, R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, has a chapter called The Insanity of Luther. Some of his biographers said the guy was just nuts. He was crazy. He was neurotic. He was depressed. He needed to be on the medieval equivalent of Prozac or something. What was missing from this poor guy's life? He was sad and depressed. You know, he never wanted fame. He didn't want recognition for his brilliance. He didn't want to step into the center stage of human history. He didn't want conflict with Rome either. He didn't want conflict with anybody. All the man wanted to know was, is there a way that I can be forgiven and loved by God? That's all I want to know. Is there a way that I can know I will go to heaven and not hell when I die? And his conscience tormented him that he was a sinner and that he was not forgiven. And the fact is, he was a sinner and he wasn't forgiven. He was right. He wasn't forgiven. 
He wasn't justified. He was condemned because Martin Luther had never heard or believed the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what was missing. And eventually his superiors at the monastery were so frustrated with him, they decided, well, maybe we can distract him. Let's, let's send him off to this new university in Wittenberg. Let's make him a doctor of scripture. That'll give him something else to do with his time besides wearing us out. And the thing is, it really didn't make a whole lot of sense that they would tell him to go do that. But he did do that. Why on earth would you send a young man who's on the verge of a nervous breakdown over his religious problems? Why would you commission him to become a teacher and preacher and counselor of others? As it turns out, in God's gracious providence, this is exactly what he needed. You see, the Bible really wasn't studied very much. It wasn't even studied in theological educational centers at the time. Isn't that odd? They didn't read the Bible. Most never read the Bible at all. And Luther certainly had never done so. But it would be in the pages of Scripture that Luther would at last see the true gospel and find the gracious, loving, merciful Heavenly Father that his sick soul so desperately needed. Roland Bainton says that Luther's studies of Galatians proved to be his Damascus road, just like Saul of Tarsus, where they both met Jesus and came to understand the true gospel, the true good news. And for those familiar with Martin Luther's life and the rest of the story, you know also that Luther eventually married a runaway nun named Katarina von Bora. And they had a wonderful marriage relationship. They had six children together. And Luther adored that woman, just adored her. His love for Paul's letter to the Galatians and his Bible was so great that he even called the book of Galatians his Katarina von Bora of the Bible. The whole book of Galatians is relevant to the defense of the true gospel, but we're going to focus on just a couple of short passages that are relevant to it. But I want you to try to step into Luther's shoes here for a moment. A, a man who was tormented by the fact that he knew if God is holy and God really knows me, I'm damned, I'm lost, I'm going to hell. Imagine being Luther and reading this stuff for the very first time and what a salve to his sin-sick soul it really was. So take your Bibles there and look at Galatians chapter 1, and we'll begin at verse 6. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Here the word of God says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Okay, stop there. Six verses into this letter, Paul's greeting abruptly ends, and he turns to the urgent, eternal matter that's at stake, namely the gospel. And Paul first communicates that he's amazed. I am amazed, he says. And that Greek verb, amazed, thalmazo, is the same verb that's used to describe the way that the crowds reacted to the miracles of Jesus. They were amazed at the miracles of Jesus. And Paul said to this whole region of churches, I am astonished, I am amazed at how quickly you've turned away from the gospel. One commentator called it Paul's indignant wonder. Paul was very angry when he wrote this short letter to this group of churches. And we also learn here that the defection from the one true gospel in this whole region of churches, it happened how? Quickly. It was fast. It wasn't slow and gradual. It was very fast. And Paul was shocked. He was astonished by it. That same Greek adverb, quickly, it's used to describe the speed with which Peter and John ran to see the empty tomb. They ran quickly. It was the same thing with the Galatian churches. They abandoned the gospel quickly. That's how fast they had deserted Christ for a different gospel. And y'all need to get this part. Errors on the gospel are desertions of Christ. Errors in doctrine on the gospel are abandoning Jesus. You are deserting Jesus because of false doctrine. Yes, doctrine, true doctrine, is what knowing Christ is all about. Jesus told his opponents in John 8, 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 7, 17, if anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God. Christianity and the gospel are doctrine. They're doctrine, they're teaching, they're theology. The gospel is propositional truths that explain the incarnation, the cross, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ in real history. How we're saved is doctrine. 
If our doctrine of the gospel is different from scripture, we have deserted Christ. Look at the verse again. Look at verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. You see that? Deserting him. How have they deserted Jesus? False doctrine. Their theology was wrong. You see how the two things go together? Remember I had a doctor, went to see a doctor, and he was a Christian, real nice guy, and he said, yeah, you, you Presbyterians and you Reformed folks, sometimes I think you care more about your doctrine than your Christ. And I really tried not to cringe when he said that. I said, tell me about Christ, but don't use doctrine. And as soon as he said, well, I believe, no, 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 don't, no doctrine allowed. To know Christ is to know doctrine. If you have no doctrine, you don't have Christ. If we have a false gospel, we've deserted Jesus. Notice that Paul says the Galatian churches had deserted Jesus for a different gospel. If the gospel we preach is not the biblical gospel, and it's not the gospel at all. Paul ties one's theology of the gospel, the doctrine that they believe about the gospel, is directly tied to their personal loyalty to Christ. If you don't have the gospel, you've deserted Jesus. Don't talk about Jesus if you don't have the right doctrine of the gospel. And he says it's no gospel at all. And he continues, look at verse 7 there. Which is really not another, he says. <laughs> Paul himself, he doesn't even like the phrase different gospel as if there's multiple gospels. And so he adds, which is really not another. It's not like there's two or three gospels. You, you've deserted Jesus for a different gospel, but it's really not another gospel because there's only one. There's only one gospel that can save, as we will see the only gospel that can save is this. You all ready? You want to know what he's so upset about? Sinners are justified before God and saved by faith alone in Christ alone, completely apart from our works. That's the gospel. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, completely apart from our works. Anything other than that is not the gospel. And if anything other than that is preached, taught, or believed, you have deserted him. And every time I read this letter of Galatians, I think, you know what? This is always true. Even if the whole church starts slowly drifting away from it, it's still true. False gospel can't save anyone. What is this great disturbance that was going on? Look at the rest of verse 7 there. He says, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And that word distort means to pervert or change. So what was this? What was this disturbance? What was this, this change? How, how are they changing the gospel? Here's how it can be changed. Adding anything to faith in Christ as the means of getting into heaven. That is how the gospel is changed. If you add anything to simple faith in Jesus as the means of being right with God and going to heaven, you have a different gospel that is no gospel at all. It is changed. Okay? Adding circumcision, adding baptism, adding works, adding church membership, adding our sanctification, adding our covenant faithfulness, adding our love for God, adding anything to faith in Christ as being what saves us, even if it's only partially saving us, is another gospel which is no gospel at all. One way I've heard this false teaching described is this. You get in by grace and then you maintain your salvation by works. That is another gospel that is no gospel at all. And Paul's divinely driven, divinely guided passion speaks forth the next words of our passage, verses 8 and 9. These words are for all of God's people today, all future generations of God's people, all future generations of reformers. And boy, do we need reformers today. Churchmen, elders, deacons, Christians, husbands, wives, singles, covenant children, anyone else who names the name of Christ as our Savior, and everyone who loves the gospel and would, would lose their families, their freedom, their reputation, and their life to defend the gospel, these verses are for you. Look at verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. It was the message of the gospel that was authoritative, not the apostles. They were merely chosen to bear someone else's message. They were to bear someone else's message, namely God's message. 
Our job is simply to get it right. My job is simply to get the meaning right. Paul is very clear that if, if he himself comes back and preaches something different, may I be accursed. May I be damned to hell. That's what that, that Greek term anathema means. That word that's translated as accursed, anathema. Anathema means something set or placed up before God, something handed over to God for destruction. And the way Paul's using it is, may that person or that angel or that apostle or that teacher or whoever, anyone who preaches a different gospel, let him be damned to hell. You see why I've said I think Paul would be unemployable today? <laughs> False gospels, they, they do that. They damn people to hell. Now, if you're willing to tolerate them, you'll have more friends in the church. I promise you that. If you don't denounce them, you'll be more light. Every single person who has ever died believing that Jesus' work plus their own good works could get them into heaven, that person went to hell. And you know what? It's loving to say that. It's hateful to tolerate it. That's how serious this is. Paul says, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if I come back and say it. It doesn't matter if an angel from heaven comes down in here and tells you to believe in Jesus plus something else. I don't care if it's an apostle, a church council, a pastor, your favorite grandma, your favorite grandpa, your aunt, your uncle, a ruling elder that you've always loved who's never been anything but nice to you. If anyone preaches any other gospel than the true one, that person is under the divine curse. May they be damned and go to hell. Paul is so emphatic, so serious, so no nonsense that he repeats it in verse 9. He says it in verse 8 and says the same thing. It's almost like he's writing to him going, just in case you think I'm being a little, you know, a little over emphatic or a little odd, I want to make sure I say this again. If anyone gets this wrong, let them be damned. Let them be lost forever. You see how serious this is? And the thing is, this passage, it's always been there. It's been there for a couple thousand years. Whether it's popular or unpopular, it's always true. Jump over to Galatians 2. I want to read the verses leading up to our passage. Look at Galatians 2.11. So you can see how this kind of plays out here. Galatians 2.11. Cephas, by the way, is uh, Peter. That was the, the name that Jesus gave to Peter. <clears throat> Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now notice that Paul did not believe Peter's position as an apostle made him above criticism or public rebuke. Remember, it's the message, it's scripture that's infallible, not the apostles and certainly not Peter. All of us ought to follow Paul's example when it comes to, the te to testing and the teachings and actions of leaders in the church. We ought to respect our leaders, respect our elders, respect good teachers. We should be teachable. We should honor them as the Bible commands us to honor them. They are our spiritual fathers, as we saw last week. But if they err on the gospel, they've got to be corrected and dealt with. Listen, they've got to be corrected and dealt with quickly. Quickly. This is always the problem, especially in Reformed and Presbyterian circles. It's, it's actually an ongoing joke. I've heard this everywhere I've been. That, yeah, Presbyterian and, and Reformed folks, we just take forever to get anything done. That's not funny. That's not funny at all. Errors on the gospel, errors on what sin is, you know, they seem to take forever to address. But listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to, back up to verses 4 and 5 of Galatians 2. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for how long? Even for an hour. So that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Notice Paul didn't make a motion to form a study committee. He said, this is so serious. We're dealing with this right now. Desertions of Christ in the form of false gospels, false doctrines of what saving faith is, false understandings of what sin is, or what is still sin today, which has always been sin, that's got to be dealt with quickly, not yielded to even for an hour. Why? So that the truth of the gospel will remain in the church. That's why. And Paul even says in the next verse, look at verse 6, key verse. 
But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Let me translate that into common parlance for you. Apostles, great teachers, celebrity pastors, angels from heaven, members of the reformed celebrity groups. If they get the gospel wrong, it doesn't matter who they are or if they have published lots of books or they speak at lots of conferences. If they get the gospel wrong, if they get justification wrong, they were Paul's enemies and he was ready to go to war. He doesn't care that it's Peter. Peter was a man of incredible importance in the early church, wasn't he? He was an apostle. He was the guy that was there with Jesus. He was an eyewitness of his resurrection and all of his mighty miracles. And Paul says, I don't care who they are. If they get this wrong, we have to oppose them. When the gospel is at stake, the glory of God and his grace is at stake and the eternal destiny of all humanity is at stake. And we cannot be silent when we hear defections from the gospel. Silence is treachery. Nothing could be more important than the gospel. And Peter was not walking straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And therefore, Paul immediately and publicly opposed him. Public false doctrine, public false actions, they do not require that we follow Matthew 18. Okay, everybody write that down. How many times? Well, you, you, can't, you can't say anything about this because you've you got to follow Matthew 18. A public heretic is not a private sin. What is Matthew 18 about? If your brother sins against you, if it's a private matter and someone has sinned against you, go to your brother. This is public false doctrine. Matthew 18 doesn't apply to this. Matthew 18 is about interpersonal sin, not public false teaching. And Peter was refusing to eat with Gentiles. Why? Because he feared Jewish believers who thought that we still had to follow the dietary laws. And they were in effect, and and that eating with Gentiles was a bad thing. They were saying that. And many others followed in this foolishness, even Barnabas. Now look at verse 14 there in Galatians 2, verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, listen. Paul knew that Peter understood this. Paul knew that Peter understood eating with Gentiles and setting aside the dietary laws is what Jesus taught them. Can you think of anyone who should have understood that better than Peter? Remember the personal visit Peter got from Jesus where he showed him the sheep with all the animals on it, all the unclean animals, kill and eat. Peter, of all people, should have known this and should have told them, no, 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 we can eat with Gentiles. We don't have to obey those dietary laws. He knew there was no need for Gentiles to act like Jews in terms of what they ate. Gentiles did not need to be burdened with circumcision, with dietary laws, animal sacrifices, or Jewish feasts. For Peter to impose this on the Gentiles like this was a great sin. He knew better. And by imposing a restriction of dietary laws on the Gentiles by his actions, Paul takes this as adding to the means of justification. Now look at verse 15 and 16. there's, There's sarcasm here in verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Could that verse be any clearer than it is? And he's being a little sarcastic, as I said in verse 15. We are Jews and not sinners from among the Gentiles. You see, the reason he's saying that is Jews at that time who did not know Christ, they really did look down on on non-Jews. The Gentiles, they were dirty. They they were unclean dogs. They They didn't associate with them. They didn't eat with them. They didn't go near them if they could avoid it. But Paul first emphasizes that he and Peter, both Jews themselves, they had come to know Christ and both of them recognized and preached that justification before God was not by works of law. Peter had preached that, so had Paul. Not by keeping the Ten Commandments, not by obeying Old Testament dietary restrictions, not by keeping feasts and festivals, and not by works of any kind whatsoever. Paul and Peter both had preached that and had not wavered from it. But Peter, by his actions, is acting like there's other requirements now. By no longer trusting or believing in one's works, but trusting or believing in the finished work of Christ on the cross, they both understood that's how you're right with God. 
And now notice how repetitious verse 16 is again. Look at verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, one. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, two. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, three. So three times in one verse, he rules out our works as having any role in what saves us at all. And you see, Peter, by refusing to eat with Gentiles who had believed in Jesus, he was implying that something other than faith in Jesus was necessary for justification. Why else would a Jewish Christian refuse to eat at the same table with a Gentile? One thing that we have learned and we've got to learn is the gospel brings all ethnicities, skin colors, and nationalities together. We're all fallen in Adam. Christians, Jews, Gentiles are all equally justified, equally adopted into God's family, equally forgiven. There is no breach of fellowship of any kind between us because of our ethnic backgrounds. The apostles all knew this. They all understood it. But Paul in particular wrote so much in his letters to make sure that there would never be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. And in our time, there shouldn't be a white church and a brown church and a black church. We should all be together if at all possible. Now look at verse 17. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Okay, very important verse. Listen, the false teachers of Galatia, which Peter really was not. He was simply acting like them. They were saying that if justification is by faith, and not by keeping the law, then the only conclusion is that Christ promotes sinfulness. Have you all ever been accused of that? If you say it's faith alone, you're promoting lawlessness. You're promoting sin. That's always the objection to the gospel of free grace. The Christian doctrine of the sinfulness of man is just as distasteful now as it always has been. Our doctrine that even as Christians, nothing we do plays any role in getting us into heaven is just as disliked today as it was back then. The Christian doctrine of sin that says our fallen condition makes contributing anything to our salvation impossible is just as anathema now as it was then. Even after a person's born again, after they're justified, adopted into God's family, uh, there's still nothing they can add, nothing that they do plays any role whatsoever in getting them into heaven. And to the unregenerate mind, that just cannot be true. To the, to the mind that's still in the flesh, that doesn't know God, that just cannot be. If, if our works don't play any role at all, then Christ is a promoter of sin. Christ is a minister of sin. You see, it's just impossible for unbelievers to think that an entirely gracious salvation given to sinners as a free gift without any reference to their good works, that could only mean that Jesus promotes and encourages sin and the people that believe it are just going to be lawless in the way they live. They don't understand God changes us and God gives us new desires and a new heart and a hunger for righteousness. Also, these Judaizers, these Jewish false teachers, they didn't like any idea. Listen, they didn't like any idea that put them on equal footing with Gentiles. That's why Paul says, we who are Jews and not these sinners among the Gentiles. He's saying, you're, you're thinking totally wrong. We're just as bad as them. Yes, I know for a couple thousand years, we've all looked at ourselves as up here, those Gentile dogs, they're down over there. They're, they're these horrible, evil people. And Paul's message and the message of Peter and the apostles and the Christian faith is, we're all equally horrible. We're all equally sinful. There is no group of people that's inherently better than anyone else. We're all sinners, just like the Gentiles. No one's better than anyone else. We're all equally sinful and fallen, and we all equally need the righteousness of Christ. No one's righteousness. The Jews or the Gentiles can get anybody into heaven. And these Judaizers, these false teachers there in the Galatian churches, while they were willing to say, oh yes, faith in Jesus is necessary. You couldn't do it without it. They were not willing to say that it was enough to justify one and to bring one into heaven. They wanted to insist that you also had to keep these dietary laws and you also had to keep the Ten Commandments and you had to be circumcised and you had to add these things to faith in Christ. And Paul says, that's another gospel. That can't save you. They couldn't stand to think of themselves as being in the same category with those sinners from among the Gentiles. Remember how the Jewish Pharisees, remember how they, they objected to Jesus? This man has gone to eat with a sinner. What, what does that assume? We're not in that category. We're, we're up here. Those sinners are down there. And Paul's message is, no, you're down there with them. Okay? And nothing about being Jewish makes you right with God. Not these dietary laws, nothing. 
Now look at verse 18, powerful verse. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Listen, here's what he means. When it comes to justification, adding works to faith in Christ for salvation is rebuilding what Paul had once destroyed. What did Paul destroy in all of his preaching? Just as I and all ministers of the gospel seek to destroy in our preaching, he destroyed this, salvation by works. If our preaching is not aimed at destroying that, then we're not preaching the true gospel. I want to destroy that notion. Our works can't save us. Not our works, not our fruit, nothing we do, our sanctification, our progress, nothing we do saves us. That's what we destroy. Look at verse 18 again. If I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor. In other words, if I tolerate this error of adding things to faith in Christ to save you, then I'm rebuilding what I destroyed. And if I do that, I'm a transgressor against the gospel itself. Look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. It is very fitting for us to be in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments now. Paul's relationship to the law, please listen, his relationship to the law, to the Ten Commandments prior to meeting Christ was real simple. Before he met Jesus, Paul's attitude about the Ten Commandments was, I'm doing great. As to the law, blameless. <coughs> Philippians chapter 3, remember he gives his old resume? If anyone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in their works in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of, of Benjamin, of the nation of Israel, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. As far as the Pharisaic understanding of it went, sure, Paul thought he was doing great, and so did everybody around him. But oh my, how that attitude changed when he met Jesus. And then he says, but whatever things used to be gained to me, I have counted as loss for Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The Institutes of the Christian Religion, one of the greatest treatises of Christian theology ever written by the great John Calvin in its final form. It was some 1,700 pages long. Every page of it is worth reading. It's divided into four books with dozens of lengthy chapters and subpoints in, in each chapter. And the opening point of the book, the opening paragraph of the book, is titled, Without Knowledge of Self, There Is No Knowledge of God. The second point, Without Knowledge of God, There Is No Knowledge of Self. Listen, why was Paul so satisfied with how righteous and good he was? He didn't know who God was. We can't know ourselves. You and I do not know ourselves until we first know God rightly. And we can't know God rightly until God powerfully, irresistibly, invincibly makes us alive in Christ and enlightens our minds with that knowledge. John Calvin wrote this, quote, Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating God to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Just so, listen, an eye to which nothing is shown but black objects judges something dirty white or even rather darkly mottled to be whiteness itself, end quote. If all you've ever looked at is stuff that's dirty, if it's just a little less dirty, it looks like whiteness itself, doesn't it? It's only when we see God, who he really is, that's when we see what we really are. And until that happens, we don't know who we really are. We all think pretty well of ourselves until the Holy God closes in and shows us a glimpse of who he really is. Holy one of Israel, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the one whose face no man can see and survive it. When the godly prophet Isaiah 
had his vision of the Lord Jesus exalted on high in Isaiah chapter 6. And he, he saw and heard the fiery seraphim, the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah, upon seeing the holy Lord Jesus in glory, could only pronounce God's judgment no longer upon Israel, but upon himself. Woe is me, he said, for I am undone. That Hebrew word means I am disintegrated. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, he said. Paul, who once said, I'm blameless. When I think about the law, I'm blameless. When he saw Christ, all of a sudden that changed into, oh, wretched man that I am. I am the chief of sinners. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. It's not until we encounter the holy God and he gives us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear that we really know him as he is. The holy God who punishes sin and will by no means acquit the guilty. Only when we know him will we know ourselves for the sinners that we are. Sinners whose only hope of heaven is found trusting in the finished work of Christ and not trusting at all in our works or anything we ever do. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What a far cry is that from, hey, looking at the law, I'm blameless. I'm doing great. Now it's my only hope is that God loved me and Christ died for me. This is why Christ is not a minister of sin. When a person is converted to Jesus, born again, justified by faith alone, adopted into God's family, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, listen, they die with Christ and are recreated, born anew, and are raised to live a new life. The same man would write in 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he died for all that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but live for the one who died for them and rose again in their behalf. Our confidence for entering heaven never looks to ourselves or our works, but only to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up in my behalf on the cross and took the curse of my disobedience upon himself so that I could be forgiven and justified and reconciled to my heavenly Father. And the last verse of the chapter is so critical. Look at verse 21. See it? I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. I don't nullify the grace of God. I don't invalidate the grace of God or ignore the grace of God. If righteousness, if justification, if getting into heaven was in some way or could be by keeping the law, by being good enough, then Christ died for nothing. That word translated needlessly, it means to no purpose, in vain. If our works could do it, Jesus didn't need to die. If we could save ourselves by our works, then Christ died for nothing. Jesus' death on the cross is proof that justification before God, being saved from the wrath of God, cannot be achieved by our works. To come to God, we've got to come on his terms. And God's terms are so simple. Repent, grieve over, hate your sin, recognize it for what it is, and you cast your hope of heaven solely and only on the finished work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. And Luther's need was that. He needed to hear that message. He'd never heard it before. But as he started studying Paul's letters and started studying Romans and Galatians, Luther wrote this. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean the righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing us. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love this just and angry God, but I rather hated him and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice, the righteousness of God, and the statement that the righteous shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. 
The whole scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me an inexpressibly sweet expression of great love. This passage of Paul became the gate of heaven. And says Luther, if you have a true faith that Christ is your savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but only looks upon a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. It's simple, and it always has been simple, dear ones. What God demands from us in the law, we can't do. What God demands from us in his law, he gives us as a free gift in the gospel. Christ's perfect life of obedience to the Ten Commandments is legally imputed into our account when we stop believing in our works and we start trusting only in him. How can sinners go to heaven and not hell after they die? By being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How are we clothed in his righteousness? How is one to have that righteousness which God requires, demands from us, and which is indispensable to salvation? By faith alone. Meaning you cast yourself on him and nothing else. And God's promises, Jesus' promise, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Heaven is a free gift. It can't be earned. It can't be deserved. It can't be merited by anything we ever do because everything we ever do is stained with sin. It can only be received as a free gift. And the moment we try to work for it or add anything to it or to deserve it or earn it, we destroy it. Receive and rest upon Christ's personal righteousness and his death to pay for your sins. And you will know the gracious, loving smile of your heavenly father forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. May we have the same passion that your great apostle Paul had for that one true saving gospel. And we pray that we would rejoice in it on this Lord's day and rejoice in it every day of our lives. Justification is not by our works. It's not by works of law, but by trusting in the finished work of Christ. It's by faith in Christ alone because we get into heaven and by the righteousness of Christ alone. Thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name, amen.